Well, that was the opening music to Touch of Evil, released in 1958 and written and directed by Orson Welles and starring Charlton Heston, Janet Leigh, also starring Orson Welles, uh, Joseph Kalea, Akim Tamaroff, Marlene Dietrich, and Zsa Zsa Gabor makes a very brief appearance as well. I know. And Dennis, don't forget Dennis Weaver. Oh, yeah, Dennis Weaver. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> as the as the night manager. That's why he looks so familiar. I didn't realize that was Dennis Weaver. Yeah, what a character. Wow. Um, and then the music was by Henry Mancini, and that was really evident in the opening shot, the, the very extended, what did you say, three and a half minute unbroken edit? Yes, yeah. yes. Just to, just to orchestrate that would take a, a creative genius to pull it off with all those cars and people and moving camera oh my gosh yeah the the camera moves in that and then the kind of the sweeping uh arc of the camera up over the top of a building and then down into this crowd and it was it, was, it took me a minute literally about a minute to realize that there were no edits and then i just kept watching and i was like yeah, and there's still no edits and, and there's still no edits and i was like wow impressive it's really a a, a five-star a thumbs up to the cinematography of Russell. I think it's Metty, M-E-T-T-Y, that he could do that because they had such a limited budget. Yeah, and, and just the planning that would that it would take to, to get everybody to hit their marks at the right time. And, and I wonder if they had to do it multiple times. I didn't, I didn't read if it was all done at once or if they... They must have practiced it quite a bit, I would think. Well, I read that, I read that Wells had the cast and crew meet for a couple of weeks prior to the beginning of filming to go through the uh, screenplay and all the steps and scenes and everybody had an opportunity to contribute to that so I, I, would, I would guess that during that two-week period of time they, they walked through that scene. I do not think they took it more than one shot hmm. to do that hmm. but it was well it was well rehearsed. Gotcha. That makes sense. He really went in for that yeah. and the, the good news about this is we both were able to see the director's cut which was put together in 1998 because the original that came out in 1958 they put the credits and all over the over the top of that scene that opening scene and Wells wrote a like a 58 page memo to the uh, studio and, and the executives uh, outlining how he thought they should change the film back to his original image which finally was done in 1998 and that's what we got to see yeah, I rented my copy on Apple TV, and I'm just assuming that any version that you see like on a streaming service now is going to be that director's cut. 
But I also put it in my DVD queue on Netflix, but it says that it has a very long wait, so I have no idea when I'll actually get it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of demand for that because it was shown a couple times on Turner Classic Movies, and and, uh, there was something else that was a retrospective on Wells' life, and I think it generated a lot more interest. Well, we should probably introduce ourselves here. Uh, Okay. You're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net. And on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from sunny, summery North Bend. I think uh, it's going to be up in the 80s this week, 80s Fahrenheit. Nice. Uh, this Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where our weather will be the same as, as the weather in North Bend, Washington. Welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and the director's cut of Touch of Evil, which, uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, has a lot of different plots going on, which I wrote down so I would hopefully not forget any. It was distributed by Universal International and... Uh, there's a lot going on. It's not even a two-hour movie. It seems longer to me than that because of all the people involved and, and the stories involved. Yeah, I mean, the basic gist of it is that there's a bombing that happens, uh, and it's right at the border of the United States and, and Mexico. And, I mean, we see this right at the opening, so it's not spoiling anything, but the, somebody puts a bomb in the back of this American's car, and then they drive the car over the border to the United States, and then the bomb explodes, killing the driver and the, per- the passenger. And because it happened that way, it involves people from both sides of the border. And it's uh, Charlton Heston plays... Um, Ramon Vargas. And he's the pretty high up sort of detective slash narcotics... Uh, I don't know, what would you call him? He's kind of an... Uh, uh, nar- narcotics detective, I, I, that'd be my name. Yeah. Uh, it kind of reminded me of an early look at like that that show Narcos. I don't know if you ever watched that show Narcos, but... Uh, oh, I, I think I did watch one or two episodes. Yeah, but that whole sort of like uh, in, uh, border, the drug trade across the border and, and what was going on with the different cartels and families and and then the police and the federal government getting involved to try to stem that it was sort of a little bit of early look at that in this movie i felt like um well then we uh the uh the uh police captain for the uh, u.s side of the border orson wells is hank quinlan yeah and and he he just every time he's on the screen it just dominates the screen by the way he's he looks and oh, acts God, and was, moves and it was disturbing. Like the, just his mannerisms yes. and the, and just his physical appearance and he always looked like he was sweaty and and just like he smelled bad. You know, he was like <laughs> it was he was just a, a gross character and I and I mean that in like different senses of the word gross. <laughs> Truly, and 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 he doesn't change that appearance the entire film. I think he's with the uh, is that the Ross Ross. I forget the name of the town, the fictitious town, across the in the U.S. Ros Lobis or Lobis or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. I can't seem to find it right now. I'll come up with it as we go along. But you know, in addition to that car bombing, which is is one uh, big piece of the film, 
It's also a story of uh, newlyweds. Charlton Heston and Janet Lee are newlyweds. And uh, so there's an interracial aspect to the film. He's uh, Hispanic and she's, I think, from Pennsylvania and European uh, German descent. So there's that. And then we've got the the hapless gangster leader, uh, Akim Tamarov, as Uncle Joe Grande and his gang of hoodlums. So we got that going on. And then we have this uh, mysterious woman, um, played by Marlena Dietrich, who's running a brothel, but is also a fortune teller. Yeah. But, you know, the, to me, the, 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 the main theme of the film, and what I really took away from it this time, is the relationship between Orson Welles' Captain Quinlan and Joseph Kalia's Pete Mendez, his is a partner or subordinate and how long they'd been together and how that goes from a truly supportive relationship and how it changes through the course of the film to the ending. To me, that's, that's the ultimate betrayal in that film. Well, and I think it's also a a commentary on police power and unchecked power and how you can become corrupt and how you can justify that corruption to yourself um, because, yeah, there's this relationship between Menzies and Quinlan, but then there's the relationship between Sanchez and Menzies and then Sanchez and Quinlan. And there's that scene when uh, Men- no, when Quinlan is in the public records hall and he's looking at all the old yes. case files that Quinlan has, and then Menzies shows up and he's, he's like frantic and he wants to know what he's found and then... Quinlan just lays it out. No, sorry, uh, Sanchez just lay. Ah, Vargas. Let me don't, let me start over again. I have the names all wrong. So Vargas is investigating this bombing, and he thinks that Quinlan has planted evidence uh, because there was the scene in the the apartment of the man that they think is the bomber, and. Vargas goes to the bathroom and sees this shoebox and it's empty. And then a little bit later, Quinlan comes out and there's two sticks of dynamite in that shoebox. And they say, oh, this this is where he kept the dynamite. Vargas is uh, like, well, no, I just looked in there and there was nothing in that box. What is I it, I found it. Found what, uh, partner? Come here and look. I don't even know this Sanchez. All right, boy, boy, you come in here. Now, in English, just how much dynamite was it you stole? What good would it be to tell you that I've never seen any Poor dynamite? Poor Rudy Lineker. He did all he could to keep you away from his daughter, but she stands to inherit a million bucks, so naturally you just moved in here. Marsh and I were married yeah. secretly. A million bucks. Ain't no secret about that. You got scared he changed his will. Why don't you let up for so a minute? you got yourself this highway you job. You broke into the explosives, been in stolen. That's a lie! Oh, ten sticks of dynamite! No! No! <laughs> Well, Hank has done it again. He's nailed his man. Thanks to you, partner. Me? Yeah. <laughs> if that dynamite had been a snake there in the bathroom, it would have bitten me. Well, I promised <laughs> Chief Gould that I'd keep you informed, Vargas, so I'm doing it. This is it. We've broken the case. Rudy Lineker was uh, blown up with eight sticks of dynamite, and uh, Sanchez stole ten. That leaves two, and we found them both. You heard that, boy. We found the dynamite. That's impossible. Well, we found two sticks. Like That's Fox, the right number. Brand. Where right did you find this? Right here in your love nest. Where? Well, you had it stashed, of course. 
What are you trying to do? We're trying to strap you to the electric chair. We don't like it when innocent people are blown to jelly in our town. There's an old lady on Main Street last night picked up a shoe. The shoe had a foot in it. We're going to make you pay for that mess. They're trying to railroad me. I don't know why. I never stole any dynamite. So inocente. Lo juro que soy You'll have to stop him yourself. You know, and he can talk Hindu for all the good Tumba de mi madre. He swears on his mother's grave that there has never been any dynamite in this apartment. Sure, sure. Take him in, book him. Let's go. You say you found this dynamite in the bathroom. Pete found it to show him the dynamite, Pete. Can't you do something to help me? What are you scared of, partner? That stuff isn't nearly as easy to blow up as people seem to think. It doesn't go off quite that easy. You found the dynamite in this box? Dynamite? Yeah. Pete found it. Told you that. Captain. Yeah? I looked in that box. Just now, there wasn't anything there. I know how you feel. Do you? Sure, I do. You people are touchy. It's only human you'd want to come to the defense of your fellow countrymen. So it, it kicks off this investigation into Quinlan, and the, what I was kind of getting at was this relationship between Vargas and Menzies, and then Vargas and Quinlan uh, really points out kind of that dynamic of power and right and wrong and police brutality and police you know, power and abuse of power. It, it really does. It, yeah, corruption is rampant through this film. Um, plus, I don't know about you, but I found that uh, uh, Uncle Joe Grande was the most laughable mob leader I think I'd ever seen in a film. He's, he's running around, his hairpiece gets all turned around, then he loses his hairpiece, and, and uh, he just seems to be sort of on the borderline of out of control because he's so inept. And that, it's, definitely, it's, he's, he's a funny character. It was such an unusual contrast with the Quinlan, with the Quinlan Vargas uh, characters. I, I did read that uh, the film was made largely on the, on the basis that they were able to get Charlton Heston to sign on to do that part. He had just he had just come off of the Ten Commandments, which was a huge and popular film from 1956, and it was before he had done uh, Ben Hur. But he's the one I think was instrumental in putting the, the emphasis on getting it done. And then he he said, "Well, once he found out Wells was going to be in the film as an actor, he said, why don't we just have him direct it?' So lo and behold, they had him director, actor, and a lot of other things, all for one salary. <laughs> <laughs> and he was he was trying to get back into Hollywood because he was always on the outs with with a lot of the executives and studios he always goes over he budget over, <laughs> over budget and sometimes the film wasn't finished and uh, I think he might have been slightly difficult to work with so he was so creative. What did he do after this? He did a lot of films later, but this was the last time I think he ever did a Hollywood studio film. Oh, okay. And then he shows up in, in parts in other films later on. I don't have that list in front of me, but um, it was not his last film, but I think it was his last film for the studio system. 
He's just a, he's an interesting character. I'm going to read his life story. There's a lot of books on him. I got to find one good one. When he was 16 years old, he went to Ireland and rented a donkey cart and just went around the island and the Aran Islands in Ireland on his own. Oh wow. Sketching, making notes, learning about the people at 16. That takes some guts. Wow. I I read another uh review because I was really digging into this, and the reviewer thought that the perfect character to play Vargas, if it hadn't been for the need to get Charlton Heston on board to even get it funded, would have been Ricardo Montalban. Oh, yeah, totally. Because he had done that detective show from earlier in the 50s, but without Heston, there would have been no film, from what I read. That would have been cool to see Ricardo Montalban in, in that role. But I, I mean, overall, I thought Charlton Heston did a good job. I mean, he has a great presence, he and he's able to stand up to Orson Welles in those scenes where they're together, especially at the end was, when they're when they're really kind of facing off. Oh, didn't you find that ending to be unusual? I mean, that was sort of a, a ahead of its time with the recording and the wires and the the equipment that Heston had to use to pull that off. Looked like it weighed a lot of, you know, like 25 pounds, and it was big, and he had to cart it around. Yeah, yeah, and it kept kind of cut, getting fuzzy and staticky and c- cutting in and out, and you're, like, wondering if he's going to get what he needs from this recording. Yeah, it was it was good suspense uh, building it up there based on the technology that they were using. The movie starts off as kind of a pretty—I mean, I thought it was going to be a pretty straight-ahead detective movie about uncovering who— did this bombing, but then pretty much within a few minutes of meeting Quinn, you know that that it's not going to be just a straight-ahead detective movie because he's you can tell he's corrupt from the beginning, and he's such a he, he. It's like why is this guy so powerful? You know, he's like so well liked, and he's he. I guess he's probably had a really successful career of convictions, and we find out later that a lot of those were probably. Uh, falsified uh, and then and then we also we don't exactly know all the details of of uh, Varga's position in the Mexican government but somebody at, at some point says well he's basically cabinet level in the in the in the Mexican government which means he's really up there yeah yeah he's no lightweight that's for sure and when they kind of face off near the beginning of the film when uh, Vargas is bringing in a, a few of his friends or, or counterparts from the U.S. side. He brings them over to the Mexican side, and they're at his office, and he's showing them this paper that he found that says that Quinlan had bought 17 sticks of dynamite, but then only used 15 of them on his on his ranch. And there's and then and then Quinlan shows up. It was quite a scene between all of them because who are you going to believe? You know the the U.S. Yeah. side they know this they know Quinlan really well and they I guess they trust him, and then Vargas but they also know Vargas pretty well and they 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 think well he wouldn't be making this up so, and then and then Quinlan gets so upset that he throws his badge down and says well if you're not going to believe me and you're going to force me to try to answer these questions I quit and you'll see me on the next election. And then that one guy who was the elected official is like, oh, he gets all, all freaked out. He panicked. He panicked. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I got to thinking that Quinlan probably, this is just conjecture on my part, but the backstory on him is, in my mind, that he had 
a whole file on everybody that was of any significance in the town where he's from and in that part of uh, Southern California because he'd been in the job for so long and he was so corrupt, it wouldn't put it past him to keep everybody in line because they were afraid that he had the goods on them or he'd, he'd make it up so that it looked like they were in the wrong. Oh, by the way, I, I found the name of the town. The story takes place in Los Robles, a seedy Mexican-American border town. Seedy is right. One of the things that I wondered about in the movie was uh, the relationship between Vargas and Janet Leigh's character. Susan, and they they just used Susan Vargas. Yeah. But I believe she was from Pennsylvania or New York or somewhere like that. It was never clear to me how she ended up in that border Mexican border town, which, by the way, when they filmed that opening, that looked a lot like Tijuana. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it was a stand-in for Tijuana, you know. I know, but it just looks so real. The stand-in for the rest of the film was pretty much shot in Venice at that time. There were parts of Venice that were sort of downtrodden. They picked that. Oh, wow. But that opening just looked so real in terms of location. So Vargas, they're they're newlyweds, and and it's their honeymoon night, and that's the night that the bombing happens. And uh, Vargas tells Susan that, well, I, I... I have to go figure out what's going on with this. You go back to the hotel. And as she's going back to the hotel, she gets intercepted by the the Grande boys. And they kind of are setting her up. They take a, a weird photo of her, and then she meets the uncle, um, Joe Grande. And Joe is kind of threatening her. And she she's a very strong character. You can... You get that right in the scene when they confront, when they're confronting each other. She's not going to back down. My nephew says you call him Pancho. Why? Why you call him Pancho? Just for laughs, I guess. This note says you have something for my husband. Yeah? Senor Vargas, eh? You know who I am? You want me to guess? My name is Grande. Oh. We've heard that name before, hmm? Aside from the case my husband's been working on, isn't Grandy what that nightclub is called? Yeah? Yes. Grandy's Rancho Grandy. My God. Kind of a joke. Get it? I can't say it's the funniest thing I ever heard. The name ain't Mexican. I got a permit for this thing. The Grandy family's living here in Los Robles a long time. Some of us in Mexico, some of us on this side. Must be convenient for business. Yeah? What business? Grandy business. Yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know what's wrong with you, Mr. Grandy? You've been seeing too many gangster movies. Mike may be spoiling some of your fun. Mike? My husband, yeah. And if you're trying to scare me into calling him off, let me tell you something, Mr. Grandy. I may be scared. But he won't be. Who wants to make trouble? Trouble? As a matter of fact, Mike must be looking for me just about now, and that's bound to mean trouble. <laughs> What's so funny about that? Pregúntale si su marido es celoso. Uh, he wants to know if your husband, husband is jealous, senora. You silly little pig. Who are you talking about? I'm talking about you, you would... Ridiculous, old-fashioned, jug-eared, lopsided little Caesar. I didn't get that, senora. You'll have to talk slow. I'm talking slow, but in a minute I'll start to yell. 
I wouldn't do that, Signora. <laughs> Just a little while ago, this was a quiet, peaceful town here, and now this Vargas comes Grandy. along. Mr. Granby, you said you had something for my husband. Don't you think it's time you gave it to me? I think it's time for him to lay off my brother in Mexico City. That's advice. That's what I got for him. Then the conference is over. I'm free to leave. Free? Nobody was holding you or keeping you, Mrs. Vargas. Nobody laid a hand on you. You were just paying us a little visit. Well? Goodbye, all. I was wondering, like, why she went with them. Like, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I thought that seemed super dangerous to just kind of go off into the night with these guys that she doesn't know about. Yeah, especially after a bombing and all. Yeah. And, and if she hadn't done that, then a lot of the things that got sent in motion in the film might not have happened, I think. Because then later, this is another thing that I didn't really understand. Vargas sends Susan to another super seedy motel that's on the U.S. side. And it seems like maybe Grande like owns that hotel or like somehow is related to the people that own that hotel. Yeah. And then I think he was. And yeah. then the Grande boys show up and then they they they're hatching this plan to basically make it look like Vargas is not only it well is is actually doing drugs, not just trying to catch people that are smuggling drugs and right like and that he's got Susan hooked on drugs and that whole scene in the seedy U.S. motel was really uncomfortable to watch. I thought. Um, oh, totally, totally. And the the uh, the uh, character of the night manager, played by Dennis Weaver, was totally added for the film. That was not in the original story, and he's beyond odd. Yeah, he was. So he just adds yeah. to the. The, it makes the whole place just... It's like uh, a couple years after this film, she shows up in Psycho with that hotel. Right. And I'm like, this is a, this is a, 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 a early look at how those hotels are going to affect her characters. <laughs> and, and, and it's very vaguely said that the, the, the nicer hotels on the north side of town weren't open because it was the off season and there weren't. Oh, there weren't I missed tourists. that because I was wondering why so, she was in hold up in this real little like roadside motel and the stuck her in this hellhole. But then also, you know, the thing, yeah. So that was weird. And then Vargas, he, I don't know, he just sort of loses track of Susan and and Susan is just very much left on her own to deal with like what's going on around her. And I don't think Vargas has any clue that the Grande boys and Joe Grande are hatching this plan to try to set him up and, and using Susan as the, the bait to try to get him to basically ruin his career, you know, trying to set him up as like a drug dealer too. It, it's again, the multiple plots because we've got the bombing and they're trying to, they're trying to decide if that was done by, uh, Sanchez, and then they've got the 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 Grande crew that are trying to put Vargas out of commission so they can have a free hand in their drug dealing. Yeah, 
And uh, Quinlan is just sort of like behind the scenes doing all this stuff. And, you know, one of the most brutal scenes I've seen in a film from that era was Quinlan and and Grande, and Joe Grande in that hotel. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, 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 that that scene was, was really uh, strong and... I mean, it was one step down from from that scene in James Bond when um, they have that fight uh, from Russia with Love when they're on the train. Yes, you know, and, and yes. the only thing that they they could have done to make it more graphic is to is to show more of Quinlan like actually strangling uh, Grande. Uh, but they, I mean, they basically showed it. What? Vargas's wife, a narcotics rep. Well, one of the boys that was on this wild party gave me the buzz, see? I just relayed to the vice boys is anonymous. The Hotel Ritz, room 18. The way I hear things got a lot of control. Don't be surprised what they find. But what about me, Hank? What do I do? Keep after him. Break him. Break him. Put up the phone. Receiver. Give me the key. Told you I brought you up here for a reason. Susan is laying on the bed like in a total drug stupor because they've drugged her up yeah. to make it look like she's hooked on drugs. I think it was Wells' effort to punch another hole into the Hayes production code. Yeah. And he took it as far as he thought he could get it to go yeah. and still have the f scene show up in the film. Quinlan was, was uh, a hauntingly horrible uh, character. Yeah. scene with him I didn't like him and I thought he just he's probably one of the better bad guys in films that I've seen he, you know even as you watched him on the screen you could smell him yeah oh totally alcohol you know just body just odor awful. just like oh God. smoke yeah and there's I, I was trying to think of like is there anything redeeming about him and the only possible redeeming Thing that I could think of was that he, his wife was strangled when they were fairly newly married. I'm kind of I'm kind of guessing, and and that totally warped his worldview because he talks about how he hunted this guy that he thought was the convict, and then I mean the the, the who he thought was the murderer, um, 
but that that's like a whole that like little throwaway line about how he was hunting that guy could be a whole nother movie yeah yeah and just the way without giving away a lot of the ending he ends in the same kind of a mess the film ends in that same kind of mess for him i read a review by roger ebert about the film directly from the article much of wells work was autobiographical and the characters he chose to play were giants destroyed by hubris. Now consider Quinlan, who nurses old hurts and tries to orchestrate the scenario like a director, aligning dialogue and roles. There is a sense in which Quinlan wants wants the final cut in the plot of this movie and doesn't get it. He's running down after years of indulgence and self-abuse, and his ego leads him into trouble and ultimate disaster. Wow. Wow, that's a good way to think about it. Do you think that was do you think that was subconscious like that he was choosing roles like this because I mean, you look at Wells just as a person in this film and his physical sort of well-being um he doesn't look good. Like he's definitely sort of been not taking care of himself. It, it, you know, it fits perfectly with the character, but I I'm just wondering like how much of his choice of roles and and what he decided to work on really was influenced by sort of that what Roger Ebert just touched on which is well that that's brilliant I really do think that was a, that was a factor when I think of the roles that come to mind that he was in let's see what did I do with that quote again we think of uh, citizen kane he plays the kane character who's doomed and then in the uh, the movie that he made that I love that was, uh, oh gosh, I got so many notes here. The Stranger from 1946, and he's the Nazi hiding out in that New England place, and he's doomed there. And then, of course, if that's not enough, he ends up playing in Macbeth, Othello, and then this role. I think I think it was a strong influence on him in terms of how he selected the characters he was, he was playing. So I, I, I do agree with that. So the the the, uh, the film is just I've I've seen it maybe four times. I never saw it when it came out in 1958. It may not have made it to uh, my hometown, but when I first saw it in college, I thought this is quite a film. But every time I see it, I, I, there's more to it. Yeah, it's just it's, well, the, it's so layered. Yeah, I, yeah, we we can't understate how impressive the cinematography was too, and and the, the use of the really deep shadows and the and the bright highlights and the the moodiness a lot of the film there's there's whole sections of the film especially near the end that are really dark it's like you're you're feeling sort of lost as the characters i imagine are in those scenes a little bit and it's very foreboding and there's a sense that uh, i mean some of the camera angles i feel are things that you wouldn't see in real life but there's things that really help the story along you know like you've got somebody right up in the front foreground and then somebody off in the distance and and it and it feels like there's sort of like this tension between them in the in the scene which is like the the characters have that tension between them oh totally totally i just thought of another character that wells played that was doomed and that's the third man oh right where he's dealing with the terrible drug use of uh, selling these tainted penicillin and other drugs in Vienna after the end of World War II. Uh, on, a, on a lighter note, 
they must have gotten uh, free Chrysler products, car <laughs> uh, products, because I've never seen so many mid-1950s Chryslers with those gigantic fins, and almost all of them, if not all of them, were convertibles. I like what Varga's a, a car. That car boat. was awesome, yeah. It was huge. <laughs> it looked like about a half a block long. There was a scene when he was... could fly. And I forget who the other character was, um, but they were driving through the border town on the Mexico side, and he looked like he was going about 60 through the little streets. And I think it was rear projection. It was really well done, but it was like, wow, he's going to run over somebody at that speed. <laughs> they, must have, they must have sped that film up, too. He was with the... Uh... Uh, district attorney or attorney general? Yeah, I, have his name. I think it was the attorney. Al Schwartz. I think, I think it, was. it was the attorney general. Yeah, that was that was a supporter of his uh, almost all the way through the film. Actually, maybe all the way through the film. So uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is the cinematography, the black and white photography. This film would not have worked in color. No, I just can't see it being made in color. I don't think it would have been as good. It's, the mood is just amazing without giving away the ending too much um there's that guy that they pin for the bombing at the beginning of the film and then they basically say that he confessed to it at the end but i wasn't really sure that he actually was the bomber like i don't know that they ever caught who the real bomber was because they put, were putting so much pressure on that guy to confess that i just wonder if they didn't coerce his confession and he just confessed to just get over, get it over with, and and like he didn't see any way out of it otherwise. I, I don't know. What did you did you think? Well, I I think that's I, I agree with you. I think that's a part of the ambiguity of one of the plots that they uh, were going to make it so that uh, Sanchez, played by Victor Milan, who was a shoe salesman. Uh, was that was the one to put the bomb yeah, and then he so, finally confessed. So I mean, so I'm, that, I'm wondering about that myself. In that light, it's like, well, what what did he accomplish in the what did Vargas accomplish in the film? I guess he sort of stopped a bad guy out from with Quinlan, but but this poor guy that I feel like was set up at the beginning still ended up taking the fall. You know, <laughs> it's like that's kind of tragic. It's it's very uh, it has a lot of ambiguity to it. Maybe he was guilty. Yeah, or maybe he was. Maybe he did do it. I don't know. But it, it it definitely left a big question mark in my mind about whether they actually solved what was going on and if, like, why why that guy? Why did they bomb that guy? And you know what was what was the what was really going on in the film besides this dynamic between Vargas and Quinlan and and the corruption of the police and. I, I just felt like this was a this was a small story within like a larger story that was actually happening that we only sort of caught glimpses of. Yeah. Oh yes. Absolutely. And and for the mid nineteen fifties, this was really unusual and unique for films because you know, this film could be made today almost and and uh, would have some of the same characters and 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 storyline. I feel like that if you broke this into two parts. It could be part of like a, a, a series of, of like one hour or 45 minute like episodes of, a, of an eight episode arc of a story. You yes. Know? And, and yes, there's a scene I, I noticed it was really apparent uh, right around the 45 or 50 minute mark where um, they were leaving the apartment of Sanchez and Quinlan was talking with 
Joe Grande, and they were sort of getting buddy-buddy as they crossed the street. And then Quinlan's partner was looking out the window, and, and he, I think that was the beginning of the doubt in his mind about what was really going on and whether he could really trust Quinlan. So that is our little arrangement, see? A real sweet setup. Oh. And all the help we need from the you local. knock somebody off, I don't care who it is, there won't be any little arrangements. Hold on. Not with Hank Quinlan. for you. Yeah. Vargas can't hurt me. Well, maybe not. But maybe with our little deal, we can hurt him. I'll make deals. Yeah? I'm sure I'm all right. No, no, no. Just go ahead, like I said. Don't worry, no matter what. Something much. wrong out there? No, no, nothing we can fix. We, where you get that we stuff? Don't give me any answer yet. You keep talking as though this was some kind of a deal where I ask you to get me out of a rap. No, that ain't it at all. In this thing, we're partners, eh? Shall we drink to that? I don't. Juanita, two more double bourbons. Make them nice and big. That, that, that was like a really key scene of the two of them crossing the street and Quinlan sort of hatching this plan with, with Grande about what they were going to do. And then what was, what was kind of amazing was that Quinlan outsmarted Grande and Grande was like so played by Quinlan that the way he, you know, ended up in that hotel room and was strangled by Quinlan, it was like, wow, he didn't see that coming. It's just it's just a fantastically layered and complex film that it it you leave it after watching it and, and you have all these open ended questions and we haven't even touched on some of the others. Yeah, some of the but, oddness uh, of the characters too. Like, I was yes. trying to get my head wrapped around that that night manager guy at the hotel and what what the heck was going on there and then nobody been registered all week. No, no, it's it's it's. Off the season, nobody hardly ever comes around at all. I, I'm I'm the nightmare. There was that party. What? What party? It's a mess. Awful mess. Where? They think I'm going to clean it up. They got nothing coming. Terrible, terrible brawl. Cabin number seven. Right in the middle of the afternoon. Cabin number seven. It's a brawl. You mean there was some sort of a fight? Fight? Yes. No, no, it wasn't that kind of a brawl. It was one of them wild parties. You know the kind?
This can't be my wife's room. This ain't her clothes, huh? It stinks in here! Let's get some hair in here. It's a mess. It's a stinking mess. There's my briefcase. I left it with Susan. I some here. I'm getting out of here. My gun! You haven't been here? You haven't been in that room? I just looked in. I had a gun in this case. You didn't take it. What would I want with a gun? Well, somebody wanted it. They hadn't put that grandy boy on the desk this morning. Now this would happen. Grandy? Who do you think this belongs to, anyway? Where are they? Kids? Yes. Please. Rancho! Rancho Grande. Yeah. <laughs> And then even Gr Joe Grande was such a weird sort of like mob boss character, and I got the I got the impression that it just fell on him by default because like his older brother was was in jail and he was the real mob boss, but this kind of goofy younger brother was was having to be in charge, and he was he had these Grande boys that were kind of out doing his bidding, but they sort of didn't respect him, and they were kind of doing their own thing too, and they just wanted to party, and it was just a yeah. weird dynamic between them and it was a weird character and then you, then you have uh uh marlene dietrich's character and she kind of comes in at these key moments and like has this commentary about quinlan we're closed Cooking at this hour? Just cleaning up. Oh. Have you forgotten your old friend? Hmm? I told you we were closed. I'm Hank Quinlan. I didn't recognize you. You should lay out those candy bars. Uh, it's either the candy or the hooch. I must say I wish it was your chili I was getting fat on. Anyway, you're sure looking good. You're a mess, honey. Yeah. Uh, being old it sure brings back memories. The customers go for it. It's old, it's new. You got the television, too. We run movies. What can I offer you? You haven't heard anything about that bomb, have you? That happened on your side of the border. In a place like this, you hear things. I heard the explosion. Well, well when this case is over, I'm going to come around some night, sample some of your chili. Better be careful. Maybe too hot for you. And then Zsa, Zsa Gabor just happens to come down the stairs. He's <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I read that because Wells was going to be directing it, they they the people were beating down the door to try to get on the 
film with him because everybody wanted to work with him because he was so unique to work with, I guess. Oh, okay. It's it's a lead into something that I read and this is this is taken from an interview with one of the people that was one of the main actors on the film. I don't know who it was. This is how it goes. It it started with rehearsals. We rehearsed two weeks prior to shooting, which was unusual. We we rewrote most of the dialogue, all of us, which was also unusual. And Mr. Wells always wanted our input. It was a collective effort, and there was such a surge of participation, of creativity, of energy, you could feel the pulse growing as we rehearsed. Oh, wow. That's cool. So, I mean, I, I, I would want to work for somebody that would br- bring me in and draw me into that. I mean, just because it gives you a feeling that you're really contributing to something unique. I guess that was a skill and talent that both was good for him, but also caused him to go over budget and get sideways yeah. on getting something done on time. Yeah, he's such an interesting person in real oh. life. and I, I know we've talked about him before, but I, every time I think about him or watch one of his movies, I think he's such a... A haunting character in real life, you know, not 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 the characters in the movie, but just his own story arc. His life. Somebody should do a, a biography film of him and and uh, his his life. I think that'd be really interesting. I was thinking the same thing, and then I thought maybe there is one, and I just haven't run across it. I don't I don't ever remember seeing anything I mean, about it him. It could start off with him and his cart going around Ireland by himself, you know? <laughs> what a great... Just imagine 16. that would be the opening shots of, of Ireland and this young 16-year-old kid out there by himself <sighs> sketching and writing and and dreaming and, and thinking about, you know, Mars invading Earth and, and like, gangsters and, and rich, rich, powerful people falling. And, it, it, oh, man. And then, and then that all plays out. In, in the later parts of the film as, uh, as he gets older. It would be, be wonderful. Cool. It would be so cool. He, he was a genius at creating radio drama mm-hmm. back in the 1930s and early 1940s with a, with a number of different programs. The one that I bring to, that comes to mind is the Mercury Theater of the Air. Really, really excellent dramas. And then he was also, for a while, the voice of the shadow on radio. Oh, cool. Just that I am the shadow... And the shadow can only be heard, but never seen. <laughs> Lamont Cranston. He's a great voice for radio. He was all over the place. Yeah, but boy, he really nailed this part. I totally, oh. totally believed his character, and I was I was really turned off by him and, and thought he was just disgusting. I, I, I give the film a 10 because it's got so much going for it. I could watch it two more times and find things I, I hadn't seen the first time or the first few times. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I give it a ten as well. I think there's a lot to say about it, and we've only touched on a few things. And I thought Janet Leigh did an excellent job in portraying her character. There was, there were things that happened in the film that, as they were happening, I was like, why is that? You know, what's going on there? Why is she going to the CD? you know, motel, roadside motel. And then I, I kind of thought, well, I don't think Vargas really understood, like, what was happening around him, like the web of things that he was caught in. And he just thought that he was sending her off to some little motel where she could just hang out for a day or two and be safe and not realizing that you know, all this other stuff was happening. So, again, it's sort of like this uh, nesting doll of, of things that, 
that when you start pulling it apart, you see there's these big, yes. bigger stories happening, these bigger pictures. But at an individual level, they don't really see that bigger picture. And I think that's so true in real life, too. You don't, you don't necessarily like see the bigger things that are happening that you're a part of. And it does a good job of portraying that. He was truly creative. There's a photo I have of him. I don't know if you can see this. I'll hold it up. Can you see that one? Uh, move it up a little bit. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's near the end, I think. <laughs> With that gun. And that look on his face. Oh, that terrifying, yeah, that terrifying look of both anger and hopelessness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good movie, really good movie. I'm glad that you picked it. Well, I'm just glad we both got to see the director's cut that kept a lot of what was taken out of it by the by someone after he put it together. I, I don't have in front of me the list, but he probably did another ten or ten or so movies after this. Yeah. All right. So, so next, uh, next up next up is crisscross. Cr- no crossfire. Oh. <laughs> crisscross is another film that's really good, but this one is crossfire. Okay, so make sure that I From write 1947. the right one. I watch the right one. Okay. Robert Young, Robert Ryan, and Robert Mitchum. Yep, Crossfire. Okay, so Crossfire. that's up next. And then after that, we'll go to Paths of Glory with uh, Kirk Douglas and the French High Command, from a film from 1957, and their involvement at the First World War. Cool. Awesome. Well, that was our review of Touch of Evil, which really describes Quinlan, in my opinion. Coming to you from North Bend, no this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles is Bob wishing everybody happy movie watching. Goodbye, Tanner. Adios. Yeah, and we bought this mattress, this air mattress for the back of our Subaru, so we could just sleep in the back of the car. It made, and we didn't even bring any food or anything. We just packed an overnight bag and headed out, and it was super low key and easy, and it was it worked out great. Yeah, it was sleeping in the car actually worked out well for a couple of reasons. One, it was easy, but then there were so many bear warnings up there that I was glad we weren't in a tent just in case. Oh my gosh, no. They might come looking for food. So you went camping Sunday and Monday? Yeah, it was just Sunday night. Yep, came back yesterday. Then we had kind of a low-key barbecue at home. Uh, And yeah, Kalen came back from his road trip with Danielle. And Haley was here with um, Gilbert. Tracy came over because she picked Kyle up. So there was quite a few people in the house. Uh, Well, Tracy lives, she, she can walk over. Yeah, she lives just down the hill. I try. I, I barbecued on uh, Sunday in the direct sunlight and got all dehydrated. Oh no! And really didn't have a good evening until oh, I. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I learned my lesson. Between the heat of the barbecue and the sun, kind of. And it was so hot. Yeah, it was. Oh God. I ate too much meat yesterday. I had like for. <laughs> for lunch, for breakfast, I had some grilled pork, and then for lunch, I had a. Uh, Wagyu beef burger and some sausages, oh you know, like Bavarian sausages. And then for dinner, I had steak. And my stomach was revolting because I don't usually eat that much meat. Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Oh, 